word before Nate comes to preach. This is the word of the Lord. Reading from John chapter 3, 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we come before you and we say that we want to look at what's real. We want to be a church that focuses on the reality of this world, of ourselves, and of eternity. So we want to look at who you are through your word and what it teaches us about you and about this road we're on and about ourselves. So I pray that you would move in each of us and open our eyes as we hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, and again, uh, thank you for joining us in our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. As we go verse-by-verse, some days, uh, we, some weeks, we run into obscure and rarely preached passages. But today, our study takes us to the most famous verse in the Bible, and the 20 verses that follow. If you grow up in our Sunday school program here, or you go to Awana, you will have memorized this verse. But even if you've never opened a Bible, or if you have never been in a church, or maybe it's been a long time since you've been in a church, you know this verse, John three sixteen, And that's because it's not just popular amongst Christian groups. It has become a part of American pop culture. You see John three sixteen written on signs at sporting events. You see it on the bottom rim of every drinking cup at In-N-Out Burger. It's referenced in country music songs, on TV shows, in comic strips, and it's even printed on the side of a Monster Jam truck. I think the reason that John 3.16 has gone viral, to use a term from our day, is because it contains the plan of salvation in a single verse. Luther called John 3.16 the miniature gospel. Spurgeon said that he preached on John 3.16 once a year. Christian songwriter Michael Card says that in perhaps the most beautiful words ever written, this verse presents the why as well as the how of God's redeeming love. R.C. Sproul says this of John 3.16, 
not only is this undoubtedly the best known verse in the New Testament, it's probably the most distorted verse as well. Why? It's because people who love the apparent universality of this verse hate the undeniable particularity of it. So today we get to study the verse most often used alone in the context of the passage before and after it. And we get to see why John wrote John 3.16. Now remember that John's purpose in writing the whole gospel down is found in John chapter 20 verse 31. And we pulled the essence of this verse out and we add it every week at the top of your bulletin and to the slide up above. And that is that you may believe and have life. A rough paraphrase from John would be, I've written down my eyewitness account of true stories and miracles so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Last week was the account of Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Today we have an account of John the Baptist and his disciples. John wrote these stories down so that you may believe. As I unpack each one, the question for you will be, do you believe? Point number one in our outline, God gave his only son to save the world. As I've said, starting in verse 16, Jesus is no longer speaking. But the apostle John is teaching us about the previous story between Jesus and Nicodemus. So we need to rewind briefly and revisit what Lars showed us about that interaction last week. Nicodemus, the perfect representation of the Jews, meets with Jesus, the perfect representation of God. How does that kind of meeting go? Well, Nicodemus says, I like what you're doing. And Jesus then proceeds to read his mind. He knows Nicodemus is a Pharisee, a great religious man, a teacher, and a legalist. He knows that Nicodemus believes that his pedigree and his religious works gain him acceptance from God. And Jesus turns that all upside down and tells him, that first birth that you're so proud about, that you treasure, it won't help you at all with God. It's time to be reborn. There's nothing you can do, just like birth, it has to be done to you. Or to use the illustration, great illustration we were given last week, you're a rusty pump over bad water. You don't need to repaint the pump. You need a new well and a new pump. And to that, Nicodemus replies, how can these things be? So Jesus takes him back in the Old Testament to a story. And he says basically this, Nicodemus, you're dying spiritually. Just as the Israelites were dying from venomous snake bites, there was nothing they could do to heal themselves, to save themselves, to stop the spread of stiffening pain and death until Moses lifted up the bronze serpent. And those who believed that God would heal them by accepting this sign were miraculously healed. And Jesus concludes by telling him, I am like this sign. Except now the whole world will be looking to me to be saved. And not saved from physical death, but from eternal death. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. 
that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And on that cliffhanger, I am dying of curiosity to see how Nicodemus replies to those words in John 3.16. But as F.F. Bruce says, it is not the evangelist's intention to gratify our curiosity about Nicodemus' response to Jesus' words. His intention is rather to set forth in terms of universal applicability the lesson that Nicodemus was taught. The verse begins by saying something about the love of God and the object of God's affection. God so loved what? The world. The world here is referring to humankind. Or as John Piper powerfully puts it, the great mass of fallen humanity that needs salvation. The ocean of people from whom the whoever's come. And we could and should be amazed that God would offer love to the whole world. But as two commentaries noted, it's not, uh, God's love is amazing not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. D.A. Carson adds, the world is so wicked that John elsewhere forbids Christians to love it or anything in it. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. There is no contradiction between this prohibition and the fact that God does love the world. Christians are not to love the world with the selfish love of participation. God loves the world with the selfless, costly love of redemption. So God, the unlimited, imaginably powerful, Perfect being who drives the universe from the smallest subatomic particle to the farthest galaxy and dwells in unapproachable light. So loved, so extremely expressed his favor, desire and action to help. His compassion, his sacrifice, his character, his involvement, his nearness. And realness to the fallen, broken, sinful, hurting people of the whole world. If we survey other places where John speaks of God's love, it's clear that it is atypical for John to speak of God's love for the world. It is this scarcity of verses stating God's love for the world that makes this verse Stand out as all the more wonderful. God's love is so great that the wall of our sins cannot pile high enough to keep the love of God from pouring over and saving us. One last note on God's love for the world. I believe that sometimes we underestimate God's love for the world or or we downplay it. Because the world, humankind in general, is so sinful and evil. I think we also do this because it makes us feel more lovable too. We forget that all believers have been chosen out of the world. John 15, 9. We're not something other than world when the gospel first comes to us. But D.A. Carson expanded my view of this love for the world 
using the evil nation of Moab in the book of Jeremiah chapter 48. Listen to this. Moab is so wicked that God's decree has gone forth. Make her drunk, for she has defiled the Lord, defied the Lord. Let Moab wallow in her vomit. Let her be an object of ridicule. In Moab, I will put an end to those who make offerings on the high places and burn incense to their gods. I have broken Moab like a jar that no one wants. Moab will be destroyed as a nation because she defied the Lord. We may feel pretty comfortable with those verses. It's sad, but it makes sense, right? God is against Moab because of her terrible sins. He must not have loved that wretched people. But in the very same chapter, the God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked declares, Therefore I wail over Moab. For all Moab I cry out. So my heart laments for Moab like a flute. It laments like a flute for the men of Kir Haraseth. God so loved Moab. God so loved North Korea and Afghanistan. God so loved America that he gave his only son. The word only is the Greek word monogenes, meaning single of its kind, unique and special. For thousands of years, God had been sending his prophets, his angels, To show his love. And now he has reached up to the most valuable, exalted being in existence. The second person of the Trinity. His only son. And he gives him in love. Notice his son wasn't taken from him. He wasn't trapped or coerced or forced or desperate. And he didn't just think about giving him He didn't just say he would give him. In and from his love, he gave his only son as a sacrifice to suffer and die for human sinners. Why would God take such an extreme action and measure to show his extreme love? Well, the last part of the famous verse tells us that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his only son because there was nothing and no one else who could save us from hell. We were headed there. And as John Piper has said, it is eternal and it is not life. We've been saved from perishing. Whoever believes is saved from perishing eternally and he has secured for us eternal life. Eternal life He did not buy us a temporary, earthly, limited, fun life. That would not be worth giving the Son of God to gain. No, we're saved to a life that cannot be taken away from us. Because it cannot be taken away from Him. We're saved to the realest, truest, highest quality of life you can imagine. No, keep going higher than that. And it will never end. It will never be stained. It will never be reduced. It will just keep growing and abounding and flowing in ceaseless joy 
and vibrancy forever. What a wonderful truth. What a wonderful verse. But we haven't finished it yet. The contemporary understanding of this verse would say it ends there. God so loved the world that he gave his son in order to save everyone in the world. But the verse says that God so loved his, the, the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is the lesson that blew Nicodemus's mind. There is a stipulation and it separates all those who are perishing from all those who are given eternal life. You have to believe, not just that some form of God exists out there. To be saved, you have to believe that God gave his only son lifted up to death on a cross for you. I love how John MacArthur expresses this truth. The free offer of the gospel is broad enough, broad enough to include the worst sinner who believes. And the gospel is narrow enough to exclude the most moral, religious unbeliever. We'll look at this more in point two, but I don't want to skip over verse 17. Poor verse 17, it gets no love. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This verse adds to our previous knowledge that he did not come to condemn the world. F.F. Bruce asks a question that we might ask ourselves. If the incarnate word came into a world of sinners, how could his judgment be anything other than adverse? But, says the evangelist, it was not for judgment that he came. See, evidently the Jews, like Nicodemus, and we see that even Jesus' own disciples got the order wrong when they looked at the prophecies. They expected that the Messiah coming would come to judge. But on his first coming, Jesus did not come to judge the nations and rule from Jerusalem. If they had understood their own need for saving and had cared about the lost world outside of Judaism, they would have seen why he had to come first to save. So, God sent his only son to save the world. Let's move on to verse 18 and point number two in your outline. God gave his only son to divide the world. Let's read verses 18 through 21 again. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now the first part of verse 18 flows real naturally from what we've just seen. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. However, verse 18 continues with the terrifying and only alternative. But... 
Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John is telling us that there's a dividing line. Some are saved and some are condemned. That means some are going to get eternal life and others eternal condemnation. From, we get, from where we get, get the extremely strong word, damnation. To be condemned by God to suffer eternal punishment in hell. What combination of factors lead to such extremely different eternities? What divides these two groups? Notice that verse 18 doesn't talk about performance at all. It doesn't talk about how good or bad a person's life was. There's only one factor. Do you believe in the Son of God? If you do, you're not condemned. End of story. End of court case. No retrial, ever. If you do not, notice what he says, you're condemned already. You're condemned already today for one reason, not believing. So your works, the good and the bad things you've done, they they don't factor in. That, That was the lesson for Nicodemus. And it turned his whole understanding of getting to God upside down. That is the lesson for you and for me this morning. You may be asking Jesus the same question that Nicodemus asked. How can this be? Because if you were raised in any of the major religions, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, the New Age, paganism, atheism, or if you were raised in one of the major cults that broke off from the true Christianity, Catholicism, Mormonism, Christian science, or Jehovah's Witnesses, you were taught, were you not, that in order to please God and reach a peaceful state with whoever God is, it's up to you. Find the good in yourself and save yourself. And Jesus and John in the Bible are saying that all those religions are wrong. MacArthur puts it this way. This is so powerful. There's no one counting to see if your good outweighs the bad. No one's counting. You were judged already. You were judged when you were born. You were judged because you were an unbeliever and a sinner. You have been condemned and sentenced to hell. Your neck is in the guillotine. No future verdict will be made. The only way that verdict can be reversed and the slate cleaned and the sinner forgiven is by believing in the unique son of God. That's the only way. But you say, I thought verse 17 said God did not send his son to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So what is all this judgment talk about? Well, hear me carefully on this. Jesus did not come to condemn. We stood condemned already. It was not a neutral world into which he came, where he condemned some and saved others. He came to save, not condemn. But saving some entails leaving others in their condemned state. 
Let me give you an illustration of what this means because it's so vital for you to understand. Picture yourself in a car, driving down a country road, listening to the radio, maybe the window's down, or maybe it's even better, it's a convertible. You feel good about life. And there's a traffic helicopter up in the air somewhere overhead, and they have a totally different perspective of the world than you do, and they're broadcasting over the radio to tell drivers what's happening on the roads. And as you drive along, the helicopter begins broadcasting that the suspension bridge ahead has collapsed. But the drivers can't see it until it's too late. And they're flying over the edge. I actually saw a news story like this once. Your eyebrows raise as you hear the announcement, but you keep driving onward for the moment. And as you drive, you see that some cars have pulled over and the drivers have gotten out. And they're next to the road, waving their arms at you and yelling. Yelling at you to stop. But you see that the car ahead of you is speeding on and you're tempted to just keep going. You've got places to go. You don't have time to stop. This is the scenario pictured in John 3.16 and following. All of humanity, the world, is hurtling toward the destruction of that lies ahead. The bridge to God is down and nothing in ourselves can stop us until it's too late. Nobody needs to come to condemn us to our fate. We're already on the road to death. But God tells us over the radio that we need to pull over, turn around, that we're going in the wrong direction, but that he has provided a new bridge to the other side. And as Christians, we're no different. We were on that same road, just like everyone else. But whoever believes the message pulls over. That's the only difference. And of course we're waving our hands wildly on the side of the road, trying to tell those we love, to anyone who will listen, that the bridge is out. Bad news. You need to stop. And also good news. There's this perfect bridge that has been built by God to God. And it cost God his only son's life to build it. If you're in that car, it doesn't matter how good you're trying to be, does it? Whether you just volunteered at the hospital or you have a dead body hidden in your trunk. You either believe Or you persistently turn your back on God's salvation and will be deprived of it. So that is what I mean that God freely gave his son and the son divides the world. Michael Card puts it this way. As the light and darkness were divided in the beginning by the word of God, so now the coming into the world of the light of the world has divided those who love the light from those who embrace the darkness. So why doesn't everyone come to the light? Because, verse 20 says, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So there is a cost with being saved. You have to let go of the world. 
Because in order to take hold of the light, you have to let go of the darkness. There's a video I found uh, from 1912 that's been posted on YouTube. You could look this up. It's a video that serves as a live illustration of this. Some fruit is placed inside an empty calabash gourd. And a monkey comes along and puts his hand in the hole and grabs the fruit. But it can't get its hand and the fruit out of the calabash. In order to be saved from the hunter, the monkey must let go of the fruit. But it loves the fruit. It wants the fruit. And you watch it struggle violently to get the fruit and get away. But the monkey in the end refuses to let go and is easily trapped by the hunter. People are like this. People love the darkness. The people in verse 20 are sort of like the staff of a restaurant kitchen who haven't cleaned the refrigerator, who are working with dirty countertops, filthy pans. They hear an inspector is coming, and all they feel is fear and dread. Why? Because they're condemned already. They look around and they see they don't even have any soap or brushes. Anything they try now will only smear the grease around. They're really hoping for a cursory walkthrough. Maybe the power will go out. Maybe all the inspector has is a pen light. Maybe we'll skate through and be able to continue business as usual. They hate the light. And they do not come to the light, lest their works be exposed. But the people in verse 21 are the complete opposite. And to be clear, as we've just seen, they were no different than the people in verse 20. Until they believed that the only way to have a clean kitchen is for God to do the work. And that he is offering his son to make everything clean. It's as if God is saying... We both know there's a filthy mess on the other side of this swinging door. You can either let my son back there with these bright spotlights, even black lights, and we can take a hard look together at every speck of grime. And my son will power wash every inch. You can't even help. Or you can block the door today and wait for our final visit when we will shut you down And put you in prison forever. Again verse 21 says. But whoever does what is true. Comes to the light. So that it may be clearly seen. That his works have been carried out in God. And I couldn't hope to explain this better. Than D.A. Carson does. Listen to this. He says. While the lover of darkness shuns the light. Out of fear of exposure. Shame and conviction. The lover of light. Does not prance forward. To parade his wares with cocky self-righteousness. But comes to the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. This strange expression makes it clear that the lover of light is not some intrinsically superior person. If he or she enjoys the light, it is because all that has been performed, for which there is no shame or conviction, has been done through God in union with him. And therefore, by his power, the one follows its course because its deeds are evil. The other follows its course, not because its deeds are righteous, but because it longs to show that its deeds have been done 
through God. With an aim that we see the real Son of God and the real us, John has shown us that God gave His only Son to save the world, not to condemn the world. Point number one. But God also gave His Son to divide the world into two groups with very different ends. And that division is based entirely on our belief in Jesus. Point number two. Either we believe and are saved and given eternal life, or we run away back to the darkness of unbelief and remain condemned, awaiting damnation. Let's look now at our final section in this passage where we see that God gave his son as the bridegroom. Point number three in your outline. Let's start by reading the, the account in verses 22 through 30, and then we'll look at the explanation of it. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. So, Jesus and his disciples moved their ministry to the countryside near Salim, which is in the region of Samaria, and they're baptizing. John the Baptist is also baptizing in the area. Why? Because the water was plentiful there. And John the disciple adds an aside at the end in verse 24 that John had not yet been put in prison to tell his audience that this episode and probably all of Jesus' Judean ministry in chapters 2 through 4 occurs earlier than any of Jesus' ministry in the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those start with Jesus' Galilean ministry. Quote, after John was put in prison. Mark 1.14. Okay, verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and asked him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. So a Jew is concerned about the difference between ritual purification baptism and John's baptism, which had the prior requirement of repentance. And perhaps as they were arguing, John's disciples with this Jew, maybe the Jew pointed out that Jesus was doing the same thing and asked them, why are all of John's disciples switching sides to Jesus? This makes them envious and worried. And they go full of emotion, it looks. And they tell John the Baptist, doubtlessly with exaggeration, all are going to him. R.C. Sproul points out that this transfer should not be surprising. We have already seen that at least one of John's disciples had transferred his loyalty to Jesus, Andrew, Peter's brother. And this was an altogether natural thing for Andrew to do since John had pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yet here in chapter 3, we see that John still had disciples. These were followers who found it impossible to transfer their allegiance to Jesus. The Cultural Background Study Bible points out that ancient teachers often competed for disciples. On occasion, teachers could be friends, yet their students wished still to be rivals. So how will John the Baptist reply about this rivalry? Let's read on. Verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. 
The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who, now, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. No envy from John, quite the opposite. First, he says, even my ministry, my role in the stream of redemptive history was given to me by God. And then he repeats what he's already told them, that he isn't the peak of God's expression of love for the world. He's not the promised Messiah. Jesus is a higher, more glorious, more amazing one. He's the only son. And John is just the one sent before him. And John tries to help his disciples understand by giving them a wedding analogy. The one with the bride is the bridegroom. We just saw a wedding a couple days ago, and I think that's pretty clear. I think these, his disciples hopefully contract. The one with the bride is the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom is what we would call the best man. The friend is there to offer a speech to support the groom. He's, he's there to honor and exalt the groom, not himself. And in these ancient times, the best man might even stand guard outside the bridal chamber to protect the bride until the bridegroom arrives to protect her from being stolen, as happens sometimes. The stipulation of the custom goes on to say that the sashben, or the best man, is then to go away rejoicing. And John the Baptist needs no encouragement. His task is done. His joy is full and complete. John is satisfied that he has introduced Jesus to the faithful in Israel and understands that Jesus must increase and he must decrease. Well, what can you and I learn from John the Baptist here? To find satisfaction and be content with the role God has given you in life and in redemptive history. Dive in. Do all that you can do to exalt Jesus, the bridegroom. Don't be like John's disciples, worried about who's getting the most attention, who's getting the most followers, the biggest success. Imagine if John the Baptist had lived like that and had not accepted and relished his mission, but had fought against it. Lesson number one, may we, like John, see that a person cannot receive even one thing, including our vocation, unless it's given from heaven. We should be entirely content with our role in bringing honor to the bridegroom. The Apostle John explains lesson number two from this story in our final verses today, starting in verse 31. These verses are going to show us that Jesus, the bridegroom, is far greater than John the Baptist or any human prophet could ever be. God sent the best. And just as in the previous chapters, chapter 2 and 3 have done, we will see Jesus surpass and fulfill Judaism. First, from verse 31, he comes from above and is above all. He's not just a great human. He is God incarnate. And the ruling capital W word over all creation, which he spoke into existence. In verse 32, we see that when Jesus speaks, he bears witness to his personal experience living in heaven with the Father. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Third, in verse 33, everything he says 
has the truth and authority of God the Father. There is no one like the only Son. If you receive his testimony, you're setting your seal or your stamp of approval that God himself is true. Fourth, he has the Spirit without measure, from verse 34. Three centuries after John wrote, Rabbi Aha rightly commented that the Holy Spirit who rested on the prophets did so according to the measure of each prophet's assignment. Not so to Jesus. To him, God gives the Spirit without limit. And John the Baptist had already testified that he seen the Spirit descend and remain on Jesus in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. The same truth is repeated here in a new form. Fifth and lastly, verse 35 tells us of the unique intimacy and authority of the only Son. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. No limit of love, no limited delegation, nothing withheld. God gave his only son as the bridegroom. Marvel at him. Be stunned and impressed. Never get bored. Because of the father's love for the son, we can stand forgiven before the throne of God. Delivered from wrath to eternal life. Because of the father's love for his only son, we're invited to partake one day of the marriage feast of the lamb. And as R.C. Sproul reminds us, we're invited not simply as friends of the bridegroom or friends of the bride. We are the bride. Christ our Savior has set his love upon us and betrothed us to himself. He who died for us will come again to receive us to himself. And then we will rejoice with him in the final increase of his exaltation. Point number four, God gave his only son to save you. This is really just a repeat of what I've said. John closes in verse 36 with a final reminder. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In this chapter, God, uh, John has made the simple and strong case that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus didn't come to bring God's wrath to anyone that was already on the world, but the wrath of God remains on whoever does not believe There are two whoever's here. So I return to my personal question to you. You are a whoever. Stop thinking about the world. Do you believe? Will you come to the light and be made clean? Or do you not believe? Will you return to the darkness that you love and remain needlessly under the wrath of God? I And the Apostle John are like men waving our hands on the side of the road, yelling as you drive by toward the collapsed bridge. Believe and have life.
right now and tomorrow and for all eternity. Please stand as I close in prayer. Lord, thank you for giving us this account by the Apostle John of what he saw, what he learned. That in these lessons, we see an offer to each of us, to the whole world. What an incredible love you have displayed and what beautiful simplicity that can be boiled down to. But we must believe. I pray for those here today that have some sort of belief, maybe, but don't believe in the only Son of God as their sacrifice for sin, that they would believe this morning and be saved. That simple. Forever. No retrial. For those of us who believe it, Lord, we give you praise and thanks. We pray that we would live more in the light That we would not be afraid of the light. That we would not run back to darkness either. But that we would approach you knowing not that our deeds are good. That we're still flawed until you return for us. We make mistakes all the time. But that we, just as we came for salvation to you, the light to purify us, to examine us, and to cleanse us. That we would do so every day, every hour. Not running away from you, but running toward you. And help us to find greater satisfaction in this wonderful part that we're invited to play, just as John the Baptist was, in pointing people to the unique and only Son of God. I pray you'll be with us now as we go, in Jesus' name.